0: Look at this beautiful picture of a mountain and this perfectly still lake and the reflection. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want to be there right now away from the slush and the snow? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's gorgeous, isn't it? The mountain is perfectly reflected in the lake because the lake is so still. There's one major problem with this picture. Does anybody know what it is? It's upside down. This is the real picture. You couldn't really tell, could you? If you looked carefully, it was a little darker. So now the lake is actually on the bottom. Now, I could do that with this picture. Do you think I could do it with this one? Would anybody be fooled if I flipped that upside down? What's the difference? You still have a lake. You still have a mountain. You still have a reflection. Why would you not be fooled if I flipped this upside down? The lake's not clear. Yeah, this lake is not still. For whatever reason, I assume the wind is blowing a little bit and there's a little bit of ripples on the lake. Now, today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10. So I'm going to invite you to open up there, Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10, as we continue our series called Greater Than, looking at the greatness of Christ in the book of Hebrews. And I'm calling this sermon Go to the source. When you look at a reflection, you have the source of the reflection. In that case, it was the mountain itself. And then you have the reflection in the water. And in the first picture, it could have been confusing. Which is which? But in the second picture, it was clear. You see, when something disturbs the reflection, it becomes abundantly clear which is the source. Because the source doesn't change. Throughout Scripture, God has given his people reflections of his character, his nature, his work, his means of providing salvation for us. He has very intentionally, through his omniscience, he has put into history and into Scripture, especially, all throughout the Old Testament, these reflections. These reflections point forward to the source, This is especially true, I believe, in the Old Testament law. If you've ever tried to read through Scripture, it's usually that part in the Old Testament, right about the middle of Exodus or so, that you start getting really bogged down. And and your eyes kind of glaze over and you go, okay, let's skip ahead to something, you know, a battle or something. Let's go ahead to something interesting. But in the Old Testament law, there are all these reflections, these pictures that God puts in place To say, I want you to know something about me. And frankly, God is saying, I want you to know something about you. Now, one such reflection is the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was this tent that God instructed the Israelites to set up during the Exodus. And as they walked through the wilderness and God led them to the promised land, this tabernacle, every time they camped, the tabernacle would be set up and the Israelites would camp around it. And the tabernacle was a reflection of several things. It was a reflection of God's holiness. The very elements, the, the way things were created, the types of metal that were used, the way it was covered, all of it was a reflection of God's holiness. It was a reflection of God's intention that he wanted to be with His people, when they got up in the morning, they said, where's God? They could go, well, he's right there. He's he's camping right there with us. He's right there among us. And when God got up and, and his presence took off, they knew, pack up the tabernacle, let's go. When his presence settled, they would set up the tabernacle and they would settle there. Wherever God was, he wanted them to be with him. It's a reflection of who God is. There's another aspect of the tabernacle that was a strong and important reflection. It was a reflection of our own sinfulness. Because although God camped right there among them, there were a series of barricades between God's presence and the people. There was the outer fence. And then when they came into the courtyard, there had to be a sacrifice. They had to wash in the basin. then only the priest could go into the inner room, the tabernacle itself. And in there, there were certain things they could do, but they couldn't even go into the innermost room. Only the high priest once a year could go In there, and it was this constant reflection of God saying, I am with you, I love you, I am holy, but you are not. It was also a reflection of God saying, But I will provide a way. I, God, will provide a way into His presence. We don't make it up. We don't form committees. We don't get together and say, hey, what will make you happy? What will make you happy? God says, no, that's not what I have taught you. I will provide a way. And so we come to the first 10 verses of chapter 5 of Hebrews. And this is the beginning of a section that will run through about the next five chapters or so about the high priest. Because in this reflection of God, his character, His nature, and of us and the relationship between us and Him, there was a need. If God is so holy and so separate, and we're over here, who is equipped and qualified to go between the two? Who is equipped to serve on our behalf in the presence of God? Who is equipped to represent God to us? And God set up the human high priest. Let's look at chapter 5, verses one through 4. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So let's look at this human high priest. Let's talk a little bit about the job description. The first thing we see is that the human high priest was selected by God. They didn't get up and say, hey, vote for me. They didn't get up to the people and say, I really think I should be the high priest. I'm clearly the most qualified. No, God selected the high priest. He set up a system where the high priest couldn't just be anybody. He had to be Jewish. He had to be from the tribe of Levi. He had to be from the family of Aaron. And so he was selected by God. It was God's uh, work that put the high priest in place, not human effort. The other job description aspect for the high priest was that he would represent the people in matters relating to God. Now understand what this means. This guy had to stand in the presence of God on behalf of the people. Do you remember as kids, I don't know if you had more than one brother or sister, I had one brother, and there'd be those times you knew something had gone wrong, you knew you were in trouble, and you know maybe something had broke, somebody got hurt, whatever it was, somebody had to go talk to mom or dad, Right? And there was the quick rock, paper, scissors The I'm not doing it. I did it last time you go. We don't want to go into the presence of the parents. We're going to be in trouble. This guy had to go right into the very presence of God. What a job description to give you a glimpse of this. There's a scene that's described in Isaiah chapter six. I just want to read this for you. And listen to the prophet Isaiah as he was taken into the heavenly throne room of God and listen to what he says. Notice what he doesn't do, first of all. He doesn't just waltz in and go, hey, God, what's up? Man, it's really good for you that I'm here. I mean, that's really cool because I'm pretty important and here I am. And what do you want me to do? Watch what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. It's Isaiah's response. Woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Would you like that job? If the resume or or the job description, rather, was posted on a wall or or you saw it on a website, hey, high priest needed, needs to be able to stand in the very presence of the Almighty, All-Holy God, would you call up that number? I'm thinking I wouldn't the high priest also had to relate to the people. He had to be one from the people. There's a problem with that, though, because Scripture tells us something about us, tells us a lot about us. But specifically in Psalm 14, 2 and 3, it says the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you need a high priest to stand in the presence of the all-holy God, you would want the best possible person. You would want somebody absolutely holy and righteous without any problem so he could stand in God's presence unashamed. The problem is nobody fits that description. Nobody. We are all sinners. And for a sinner to come to God's holy presence is to face their own death. A sinner cannot stand in the presence of God. That's why Isaiah went. Is I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King of the Lord Almighty. He knew at that moment his life was over. That was it. He was done. He knew that. Because as a sinner, he couldn't be in that place and live. But God overcame this. When he instituted the office of the high priest, he put in several aspects of that office to maintain the life of that person. See, that makes the job a little bit better, right? Because you don't have to die every time you do it. He gave some instructions. The first was that the high priest would offer sacrifice for himself. We're going to talk about this more later. It comes up further on in the book of Hebrews. But I just want to say, what an act of mercy that God said, I know you can't do this. I know you can't fulfill this role because you're a sinner, but I'm going to make a way for you to be made righteous through a sacrifice that God would institute and provide. And so the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself before he went into the presence of God on behalf of the people because he had to be holy. God also put in place a system where as the high priest went into the holy of holies, the presence of God, he would first burn a whole bunch of incense on this altar and it would fill the tabernacle with smoke and it would put a veil of smoke between the high priest and God Almighty so that he could stand in the presence of God but be veiled from his holiness. Here we have a reflection a human high priest who is able to represent us, to be a mediator between us and God, who is able to come into the presence of God through the system that God sets up and is able to understand and sympathize with people because he comes from them. Now, I'm guessing none of you spend hours and hours and hours contemplating the high priest of the Old Testament tabernacle system, Right? It's probably not first and foremost on our minds. And so we get to this section of Scripture and you hear the pastor say, hey, for the next five chapters, which is probably going to be like a hundred sermons, we're g- no, it won't be. That's, I don't know how many it'll be, like 50 or so. Uh, we're going to be talking about the high priest. woo You know, you go home and you get on Google and go, good church in, in Rochester. Where else can I go? But let's understand what these people are struggling with. You see, they had this reflection. They had something that was actually from God. God had given it to them, this high priestly system of the Old Testament. And they said, this is good. We need this. We need a way to come to God and we understand this. We get this. What they didn't understand was it was just a reflection. And it pointed to something greater. It was never great enough in and of itself And when struggles came, when difficulties came, as they often did throughout the Old Testament, what happened to that reflection? What happened to the system that God had put in place? Well, the people so often abandoned it. Because it was never enough. And it was never meant to be enough. They needed to go to the source. And we do too. We chase after reflections in this world. Things that we think will help us in our life, in our relationship with God. And we need to be pointed to the all-powerful source, Christ, the greater high priest. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So again, we have this job description. Does Christ fulfill the job description that was set up in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Because he didn't take the job on himself. God appointed him to it. That is constantly declared throughout Christ's ministry on earth. He always submitted to the Father's authority which really blows your mind when you understand the intricacies, or at least try to, of the Trinity, and and how Christ is always equal to God, and yet He always submits. Because He forms a pattern for us. He shows us, even if you have great authority, even if you know your stuff and you're super, super smart, and maybe you're even incredibly righteous, show it by serving. Show it by being humble. But there are some massive differences as well that are put in here. Even though he starts by saying in the same way, right away he goes into two key differences between Christ and the Old Testament priesthood. The first is, Christ is a different high priest because he is God's son. He's not some guy that God picked out of the crowd to say you're going to serve for the rest of your life. He is God's eternal son. And God said go and he said yes. And he came to us, to represent God. The other major difference that's laid out here is that he is a different sort of priest. Because the high priest would serve from the beginning of his time, which usually meant the last guy had passed away, from the beginning of his time until he died. But he was never an eternal high priest. When he died, somebody else became the high priest. And yet here we're introduced to an interesting concept. Melchizedek. I can't even spell Melchizedek. I've got to be honest with you. Every time I typed it in my notes, I needed spell check to, to correct it. This is such a strange thing because Melchizedek is incredibly obscure from the Old Testament. And yet, that word, that name, appears probably 10 times or more in the book of Hebrews. It's an important concept for the author of Hebrews to help us to understand how Christ is our high priest. He only appears twice in the Old Testament. One time we're introduced to him, and the other time simply refers to that time. Genesis 14, verse 18. Abraham goes out, and he has this, this large battle. He's rescuing his nephew Lot. And he has this battle, and he wins. And he's victorious. And he comes back from battle, and he meets this guy named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. It's a city. It would eventually become Jerusalem. Melchizedek wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't part of God's chosen people. And yet, as we're introduced to him in just these few short lines, it calls him the priest of God Most High, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he's earned from the battle. Think about that. Abraham worships God through this non-Jewish king outside of the priestly system, which hasn't even been set up yet, and he gives him a tenth of the spoil. And it's almost like in Jewish culture and in Jewish history, they they would have just forgotten about it. Like, ah, no big deal, go on. But then in Psalms, it comes up again. Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted here in our passage. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so the author here is doing what God did all throughout Scripture, and he's saying, look, Yes, I set up a system. The children of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, they could be the priests, yes. But one is coming who is outside of that system. That that system is merely a reflection of a signpost pointing to something greater. Jesus Christ was to be a priest and is a priest forever. His priesthood is unending. He is right now, on behalf of us, standing in the very presence of God, serving us forever and ever. He will never fail. He will never go tired. He will never quit. And he serves the people. The high priest had to serve on behalf of the people. And look at the language that's used of Christ's service. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission what's that referring to Christ prayed a lot throughout his ministry for sure but this is describing i believe a prayer from anguish it is a prayer that rose up from the very heart of him that would cause us to tremble it was a prayer that was born through suffering i believe it's the prayer of jesus in the garden of gethsemane Christ was in anguish because He knew what the cross was going to hold. He knew that's where He was going. Why did Christ suffer? Christ suffered, I believe, according to this passage, because it was part of His high priestly service for us. He chose to suffer for us. He chose the anguish for us. Part of this passage is referring to his incarnation. He chose to be made human so that he could be with us, so that he could suffer on our behalf. Think about that choice. See, there's a big difference between Christ and the Old Testament priest. Christ had no trouble standing in the presence of God. That was never an issue with Jesus Christ. He was eternally the very Son of God with all the holiness and righteousness of God, co-equal with God. He could stand in the presence of God unashamed. But the people would look at the Old Testament and say, well, yeah, but He needs to sympathize with us too. Because our high priest needs to be one from us. So Jesus chose and was sent by God to be born among humanity, to live among us to suffer for us and with us and to die in our place. And so when it talks about being made perfect, when it talks about his reverent submission, it's not saying that Christ somehow wasn't good enough before the incarnation. But it meant that as people, we would not be able to look at him and say, yes, he is our perfect high priest until we saw and knew That he had come and lived among us and suffered with us and for us. It talks about him learning obedience. And it's interesting because it says a little later on that he learned obedience and provides salvation for those who obey. So what's it talking about in this passage with obedience? Is God saying, hey, here's A, B, C, and D, and you better do those, and, and then if you do those, you can be saved, because that's obedience. That's how we tend to think of obedience. But we need to be careful in a passage that we're not bringing our definitions in, planting them in the passage, and then reading it accordingly. We need to ask, what is the author saying? So what does the author mean by obedience here? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it talks about Abraham being obedient specifically that God called Abraham to leave his homeland, to go to the place that God would show him. And it says Abraham was obedient. Now, did he do what God said? Absolutely. But the point of that passage is faith. Abraham had faith in what God was doing. He didn't know it all. He didn't get it all. He didn't know where he was going, but he trusted God to lead him. That's a key point in the book of Hebrews and frankly in all of scripture. Obedience is tied to faith. And so when it says that Abraham was obedient, it's holding up his faith, not just the actions of the obedience. Christ followed. He was obedient to God's will to be a priest who suffered on behalf of the people. God said to his son, go. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. I'm going to raise you again. And Christ said, okay, I'll do it. And he went. And he becomes for us an example of obedience, which again is a big theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Look to your Savior to remember that you need to keep going. We are to be obedient in following Christ, especially, especially, especially in times of suffering. And so we have this perfect high priest that we can look to and say, he did it for me, therefore I will trust in him and I can keep going because Christ is at work in me. Christ was able to sympathize with us not because he was weak, but because in his strength he chose to live among us and to suffer for us. Christ was able to offer Eternal salvation. The high priest, every single year, on the Day of Atonement, had to go through this ritual to provide righteousness, a a sacrifice on behalf of himself, and then on behalf of the people. And it was sort of like, yes, we've got another year, and then another year, and and now we need it again, And, and then again, and another sacrifice, and again, and we're just sort of maintaining our relationship with God. And it was always this question, and I think this was intentional on the part of God in this reflection. Isn't there more? Isn't something going to come that will do away with this forever? In Isaiah 45, verse 17, the prophet says, But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Everlasting. Everlasting. And I'm sure when the people heard that, they thought, yeah, well, okay, until the following year when we've got to do it again. Because we always screw up and, and there always has to be a sacrifice again and again. And the prophecy is saying, no, you will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. And here we have the source of that salvation. Once for all, Christ becomes the source of eternal salvation, unending, uninterrupted, eternal salvation salvation so what do we do with this go to the source sometimes we see reflections in our world in our life we see human relationships human love and it it is a picture of god's love and it's beautiful and it's wonderful but it's just a reflection and we start finding our our need there we start finding our meaning there Maybe it's our own personal happiness. Our happiness is a reflection of the joy unending that God has for us. But it's just a reflection. And so we run after these reflections and we cling to them because we get it. We can see it. We know it. It's right there. The people understood their earthly high priest. They got him. He was right there. And the call to trust in Christ who by the time of the writing of Hebrews had already ascended back into heaven and and they're still going, is this real? Is this true? Can I really trust in Him? You know, Why don't I just go back to that guy? I, I get him. He's right there. How often are we pulled back to things we get? And we want to cling to them. But then the wind blows. Struggles come. Ripples form in our life and in our world. And suddenly those reflections that we've been clinging to, all of a sudden they don't look so good. And we go, what now? And then we see another reflection over here and we chase after that until it too begins to fade. Then we chase over here and we're constantly chasing something. And God is saying, quit chasing the reflection. Go to the source. Jesus Christ is the source of eternal salvation. This is why unashamedly, unashamedly I say as a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ, his son. There is no other way. I received a, an email, or actually a, a letter. I forgot what you call it because it seems so archaic. I received a letter in the mail, you know, with a stamp and everything. I know, kids, you'll, your parents will explain it to you. So I got this in the mail. I think it was last week. And it was somebody, I can't remember where, but they had heard about, the desecration of property from people against the Jewish people. And and this lady, she had a wonderful point. She just said, please, can you say something? So I'm saying something. I don't know who she is. Maybe she'll hear this online. I don't know. It's horrible. It's horrible that people are doing this. I don't know that that's Christians or not. It's horrible. But in her letter, she said this. Because really... It doesn't really matter who we worship or how we worship. Aren't we all good religious people? And that's what really matters. And I thought, oh, there's where you went off. Listen to me. It is wrong and it is sinful for anybody to desecrate another religious person, uh, another religious person's property that is just wrong, that is not following Christ whatsoever. It is horrible that this trend is developing in our country. God is. Hates it. But we don't fix it by saying, we're all the same. We fix it by seeing the grace of God that allows us to respectfully disagree with differences. And still love the person even though we have differences with them. We've lost that. And we think the solution is to say, well, every way is an equal way to God. Absolutely not. Because even if that's true, hear me, if that's true, you've got to take Christianity off that list. Maybe every other way is a way to God. But in that case, then Christianity can't be because Christianity very clearly teaches Jesus Christ is the only way to God. So either it's the only way or it's no way at all. Look, there's only one way to God. But listen to me. There are many ways to Christ. God brings people to Christ through Old Testament Jewish upbringings where they learn the law and the tabernacle and the high priest and the sort of people that the author of Hebrews is talking to. And he says, look, look how it points to Christ. Come to Christ. He's the source of salvation. God brings people to Christ through being raised in a church. And we're taught in Sunday school and we we hear the stories and we hear about Jesus Christ and we're brought to Christ through that. He brings people to Christ from being rescued from desperate situations, sometimes from their own sin or others' sins. And in that moment of absolute desperation, sometimes even trying to take their own life, as was the case of my father-in-law, he was ready to end his life, flips on the TV, sees Billy Graham, hears the gospel, he comes to Christ. That's not my journey. I didn't come to know Christ that way. But he did. God uses all these reflections, all these different ways to bring us to Christ. But go to the source. Only Jesus Christ is the source of eternal salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we run after so many different things. And we struggle in our life with... Chasing one thing after another after another, thinking this will fulfill me, this will make me happy. I like that reflection, I like the colors, I like the way it makes me feel. And Father, maybe there's someone here today and they're busy in their life right now chasing reflections. Those things that make them feel fulfilled or make them feel happy, may they see in those things. Aspects that maybe you're even using to say, hey, come to me. Come to Christ. And Father, when we look full at the source of eternal salvation, your Son, Jesus Christ, may we not be pulled back to the reflections. May we be thankful for some of them, for how you use them in our lives. But may we understand we are to worship Christ. For he is our great high priest, serving on our behalf. He came to live among us. He died in our place. He rose from the grave, offering eternal life to all who believe. What a great high priest. And he stands right now for each person struggling, wondering, doubting. May they know right now Christ, their high priest, is standing on their behalf in your very presence, saying, That one's mine. I died for them. Father, may we cling to the source of eternal salvation. May we obey by having faith in Him. By following You wherever You lead us. Even through struggles. Especially through struggles. Thank You for the source of salvation, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.